junctures from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Robin Hitchcock is an English singer-songwriter and guitarist who led The Soft Boys in the late 1970s and released the classic neo-psychedelic album Underwater Moonlight, which has influenced bands such as R.E.M. Robin's also had a successful solo career with songs like I Often Dream of Trains. And one of Robin's main musical influences is The Beatles. With a dedicated cult following and albums ranking in charts titled Albums You Have to Listen to Before You Die, I've been wanting to have Robin on this podcast for a while now, and I'm so glad he's finally able to join us on the podcast today and talk about his life, his music, and The Beatles. Hey, Robin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. How's it going today? I am breathing away and as far as I know, intact. How about you? I am the exact same way and I don't think I'd have it any other way. Good, good. So, Robin, I know you're a big fan of the Beatles uh, and I'd love to ask you how you got into their music. So, if you could walk us through how you grew up and what kind of music you listened to as a kid... And that'll start us off. Uh, as a kid, well, it was a pre-Beatle landscape. So music was different back then. But we did, I guess my father bought a couple of rock and roll records when I was about two. We had Bill Haley in Rock Around the Clock. And we had Lonnie Donegan, who was a sort of was a British um, skiffle singer. You know about skiffle? Yeah, Rock Island Line is one of my favorite songs. Yeah, well, the, the Quarrymen were a skiffle band, you know, John Lennon's first group. And skiffle was really kind of British acoustic rock and roll, like acoustic guitars and a tea chase, tea chest bass and uh, a washboard. So you didn't have to have the, the back line, you know. Um, and it was a sort of, sort of like slightly folky what would now be called americana it was british people singing american sort of folk songs um but with a slightly rock and roll attitude so we had a bit we had that and we had bill haley and various folk records that my father liked people like the clancy brothers and bob davenport and people you might not know much about um but there wasn't anything, you know. There wasn't. There wasn't really any pop radio. There was. There was Radio Luxembourg, which played the chart music in the evenings. But the BBC didn't play very much. And there wasn't really much pop in Britain. You know, rock and roll had happened in the States and it had been imported over here. But um, there wasn't really a rock and roll radio as such. And people like the Beatles were actually collecting all this stuff. That, 
R&B stuff and the stuff that white guys did and Elvis Presley. Don't be cruel. Chuck Berry. Little Richard and Buddy Holly. Uh, and that stuff was available in Britain, but I didn't hear it on the radio. I didn't really hear anything. And I've got this vague memory of hearing Love Me Do when it came out in the autumn of 1962, which was the first single the Beatles released. And it almost seems like a kind of prequel, you know, it didn't get to number one. The Beatles were, were very popular in, in, in their area in the north of England, but it wasn't something that had broken out. And they were signed almost as a comedy band, the producer George Martin just thought they were really funny guys. He liked the interplay between them and a lot of their repertoire was actually rather naff cover cover songs. And if you've heard that uh, audition tape they did for Decca, but they're just dreadful songs. Besame Mucho and Three Cool Cats. You know, you just wouldn't want to sign anybody who was doing that. But Love Me Do was an original. And I, I just kind of remember hearing that in the autumn of 1962, staring out at the twilight in November, but maybe I imagined that, I don't know. And then then there was a big frost, there was a big freeze, there was a big snowfall, and the whole of Britain from the day after Christmas 62 for about two or three months was under snow and ice. We couldn't even get into school, you know, we just, just stayed at home and then the pipes burst and the house froze and all kinds of things. And as it began to thaw, I remember getting back into school. I was just coming up for 10 and hearing people talking about the Beatles. Um, so this is a bunch of 10-year-old British kids down the south, you know, outside London. And there was all this chat about the Beatles. And I thought, oh, that's a silly name, Beatles. What does that mean? And then my father came into the room where my sister and I were watching a black and white science fiction puppet show on TV. Everything was in black and white in those days. And he said, you might like this. It's the top 20. I don't know why. It wasn't his kind of music, but he thought we might like it. You know, he was probably trying to find something that he thought we might like. And um, lo and behold, there was this DJ called Alan Freeman who was counting down and he had a kind of hysteria in his voice and he he played some Roy Orbison and he played some Buddy Holly. Most of the acts were American, you know. Um, and then he said, and at number one, they're still here, pop pickers. It's the Beatles. He had this strange sort of transatlantic inflection, but he was English. So it was just like an accent from nowhere. I can't really just... It was sort of like that, you know, it just sounded like a bubble of custard that was about to pop. <laughs> um, but it just had this excitement to it. And, um, yeah, they're number one, Poppickers. It's the Fab Four, two weeks running. And <laughs> it was from me to you, I think. Um, and I suppose within about five minutes, there we were, my sister who spoke three years younger than me, so we were pretty small. I was 10 and she was seven. We were just hooked. And um, next week we listened to the top 20 again. We put the 
transistor radio and a small children's stroller, the perambulator, it used to be called prams, and we pushed it around. The, we lived out in the countryside on a sort of farm. We just pushed it around, listening to the countdown from four to five. And I think the Beatles were still number one. Anyway, by the end of the year, you know, I was sort of saying, oh, uh, yeah, can, I, can you get me the new Beatles single for Christmas? And so I got I Want to Hold Your Hand, and um, and I think I got uh, four songs from from the with the Beatles. You know, we couldn't afford an LP. It was like no one would have given me an LP for Christmas. It was too much, but they, I got an EP and a single. And... Um, so I was Beatlified. I was just changed over. And then, like everybody, every other, it seemed like every other kid in Britain, you know, every time a Beatles single came out, it, we didn't necessarily buy it, but it was on the radio and you, you just absorbed it. So at which point during your life did you decide that you wanted to be a musician as well? And did the Beatles have any influence over that decision? About four, five years later, I had discovered Bob Dylan. My parents gave me a guitar when I was 14. I didn't have any musical talent. And I was listening to the Beatles all the time. By then, Revolver was out, and I think we were heading for Sgt. Peppers. And I loved the Beatles, but it never occurred to me I could do that kind of thing. So it wasn't until I heard Bob Dylan that I thought, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to write these long poetic songs that people might or might not understand what they are describing, but they would get the feeling of it. They wouldn't necessarily literally know exactly what it was about. Beatles songs were certainly in the early days were much more straightforward. They had a vocabulary of about 20 words, you know, love, my friend, diamond ring, yeah, girl. That was sort of it really. And then, then Dylan came along and, and he introduced them to marijuana and suddenly their lexicon expanded or, you know, within two or three years you were getting I Am The Walrus and Penny Lane and Within You, Without You and lyrics that would have been absolutely impossible in 1963. You know, they would have, they just couldn't have written those songs. Things were changing so fast. So me, I by, by the time I was the time I was 16, I knew I was going to do this, or I was going to try and do this, and um, I've been lucky enough to get away with it, but I didn't know if I, if I would. Um, but I, I really know I wanted to be Bob Dylan. But billions of years later, the Beatles remain the biggest musical influence on me. Everything I do, I think, could have been on the White Album, really. Whatever I've done over the last 45 years would probably... You could imagine it popping up, whether it's whether it's one of my quiet songs or one of my noisy songs or whether it's got harmonies or it's just a solo voice, you know. Yeah, and what a great album to fit the sound of. I mean, the White Album is one of my favorite Beatles albums. It's just so eclectic and such a staple of modern music as well. So, Robin, looking back on your career, do you have any favorite moments? My career? Yeah. Oh, um, I'm just glad to have got away with it, really. Um, I had some excitement at a few points. You know, we got on TV a few times. I remember playing at Earth Day in 1990 at the Washington 
monument. To, must have been about a hundred thousand people there or something. That was a that was a very big crowd. I don't know if it was exciting. I mean, most exciting things was probably actually discovering that we got a gig up in London and somebody was going to pay us £10 to drive there from Cambridge with a van and set up and play and drive home again and lose money. But it was so exciting to actually... That was probably more exciting than playing to 100,000 people at the Washington Monument. Um, yeah, it was, it's funny what's exciting. It's not necessarily in proportion, you know. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned that the Beatles have influenced your music. Would you say that they've influenced your life in areas that are not your music? I think they've colored my life, and I think they've colored the world generally. I mean, can you imagine what life would have been like if the Beatles hadn't happened? British pop music might never have taken off or got to America. A lot of the way... Our culture changed. Human nature hasn't changed, unfortunately. But our culture changed enormously in the 1960s. And the Beatles was a big part of that. Bob Dylan was a big part of it. But Bob Dylan kind of appealed to quite a, a, a small clique of enlightened people, uh, certainly to begin with, whereas... The Beatles just sort of appealed to everybody. They were very universal. You didn't have to have a political affiliation to like the Beatles. Anybody could. And it wasn't till the bigger than Jesus remarks, John Lennon's bigger than Jesus remarks, that started getting their records burned and banned in the South. And suddenly, you know, that, that sort of, the same sort of people that then their grand, grandchildren became Trumpisters um, 60 years later, I mean, to generalize massively, but that kind of element in American society, that's, they suddenly, they got upset, the Beatles had gone too far, you know, and then all sorts of things, they came out as druggies and they came out as meditators and they came out as, you know, a lot of things that Lennon did upset people, but it also meant in a way that, they were challenging. So you had Lennon who was challenging and you had McCartney who was much more diplomatic. You know, McCartney kind of eased the path, oozed the path, took the sting out of things, took the edge off things. And John and George could be a bit more radical and Paul and Ringo were a bit more cosy and sort of just less challenging, less provocative. Um, so that balance of being kind of something that would cut through and being something that would just kind of smooth on through, you know, meant they just got to so many places. They were such a... So I think life would have been... I think life would have just been really colourless without the Beatles. You know, it's what put... It's also what put Britain on the map, really, up until Princess Diana. That was the next big thing that... that Britain's been on the map for and since then it's just really been kind of you know royals I don't know what else we're known for really just a we're just a little imploded imperial country that's responsible for a lot of the evils in the world but um we're now like a sort of harmless old grandparent in the corner you know that every so often it kind of 
goes into spasm and coughs. And, oh, no, wait a minute. We're not finished yet. Oh, we're going to leave the EU. No, <laughs> forget it, perhaps. And that Beatles was our sort of post-imperial flowering. And, uh, 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 the, and certainly the thing I'm most proud of, if, I, if you had to ask me what I was proud of about being British, I would say the Beatles. And do you have a favorite memory that's associated with the Beatles or their music? Oh, I remember, I remember sort of falling in love when I was 10 with my best friend's sister when She Loves You came out. Although that didn't last, which is just as well. I'm glad we didn't get married. I remember the kind of excitement when Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out came out. There was a sort of, there was just a feeling of movement in the air. And um, God, I remember just those singles, you know, Rain and Paperback Writer and the, the feeling you'd get from the, the new ones, waiting for Sergeant Pepper and then hearing it on some little portable record player but it was it was as rich as as they'd said it was going to be it was it really did seem kind of magical extraordinary that somebody had managed to make that it's not necessarily my favorite beatles record but it it was such an event i think all of it was they they all kind of as they as they came each one of them seemed to be another kind of marker of the way that 1960s was moving and then let it be came out right at the end and the 60s were over and i left school and and it was kind of obvious that in a way there was nowhere to go that great line in um you never give me your money paul mccartney goes oh that magic feeling nowhere to go and that's that's really how it felt at the end of the 60s like you had this enormous momentum there'd been this big so many things had changed. Modern life had started, you know. You didn't have to be married to have sex. It was possible to take drugs other than tobacco and alcohol. You could have gay sex. You know, it, wasn't, it was no longer illegal to be a, a, what was referred to as a homosexual. There was the beginnings of what then became feminism, you know, called women's lib and things that we, there's been advances and then there's been retreats, you know, abortion was legalized in 67. 67 was an incredibly pivotal year in Britain. We haven't had what you've had over there, the Supreme Court trying to reverse everything. So we still have those gains, thankfully, at the moment. And all that seemed to be marked out in Beatles records, you know, and also it was my, my adolescence. So I think everything from from Love Me Do up to Let It Be, each of them seemed like a marker of, of me getting older, but also the way the country and the world was changing. And I'm sure there was, you know, there must have been equivalents in the 70s and 80s, but for, for me there's been nothing quite like the Beatles <laughs> for billions of others. I've always felt like Beatles songs basically appeal to children and and therefore probably always will appeal to children regardless of musical styles i mean they'll begin to sound very antiquated they probably do now if you're growing up 
Um, but, you know, if you start hearing Beatles records when you're five or six, your musical tastes wouldn't be too formed yet. So you probably just pick up on the feeling. You wouldn't necessarily think, God, this is really quaint, weird old music. You might, I don't know. I don't know how much things are going to change, but because the musical rules to which the Beatles wrote are now historic, they're gone. They're like swing or like some other movement in jazz, which has vanished or I, th I think the Beatles are the closest thing the 20th century got to producing folk music. You know, you can pick up an acoustic guitar and sing simplified versions of Beatles songs to six or seven year olds and they'll probably really like it, you know. I mean, probably things like Yellow Submarine more than, um, more than something like Only a Northern Song or something, you know. So, Robin, have you met a Beatle? No, I've seen them. I've seen Ringo twice playing at the Ryman in Nashville. I've seen Paul, saw him at Hammersmith Apollo Odeon in, in 1973, which is where the Beatles used to do their Christmas shows back in the mid-60s. I saw him at, that's a Wings, early Wings show. Um... And then I saw him in Sydney about five years ago and then in Las Vegas three years ago. But no, I've, I, I saw, I was at a party he was at once and I, I, I bumped into him, but we simply said sorry and I, he was dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, um, so I've, I've seen him from, I saw him at a Brian Wilson gig. So I've sort of seen him close up, but I've never actually met him, no. And do you have a favourite Beatle? My favourite Beatles are the, are the gone ones. I mean, I've always preferred John and George to Paul and Ringo. They just seem more interesting. And I thought, in a way, better looking. George, I thought, was particularly handsome. Um, John was probably the most charismatic of them, and he started the group. You know, it was in. I think in his mind it was his group, which is why he was really hurt when sort of Paul took over. But he also wasn't really up to leading it anymore. You know, he just he'd been through so much with uh, with becoming very successful and then bearing the brunt of his remarks about. Jesus and everything, all those records being burned, you know. That must have made everybody pretty paranoid. And just the whole, you know, and then all the drugs. I'm surprised they didn't all go completely insane, really, maybe because there were four of them and they were basically down-to-earth Liverpudlian working-class heroes. They didn't, they didn't go mad they didn't get completely disconnected from reality but i imagine they must have john particularly must have but you know he was definitely the he was the one and the fact that he was then killed really that was it you know what a terrible thing 
to, um, you know, you, you take somebody's life, but you also take away a life that means so much to millions of people. And just because you think that you don't agree with what that person's become, they, they, don't, they haven't become what you wanted them to be, you know. And just an appalling act of egotism and stupidity and cruelty. But, you know, you can't really say enough bad things about the guy that killed him. Um, there's nothing good. I still can't believe it. Of all the things that have happened, it's the one thing I can't really get my head around. And I, I can't believe that the first time we went to New York, he was still alive, living with Yoko up on the Upper West Side. You know, we might have gone past him in a cab or something. Um, you know, he could have come down to one of our shows unbeknownst. I'm sure he didn't, but, you know, he was there. We overlapped, and then he wasn't there anymore. Uh, sorry, this is really nothing very profound. It's just the way I feel about John Lennon. He was not a saint, but he was a, he kind of embodied, I feel like he embodied humanity in a way. I feel like he was humanity's representative on the cosmic scale. And all the battles that were going on inside him kind of represent whatever goes on inside the rest of us. Um, and I feel like he tried to make something positive out of what was going on with him, and that was probably not easy. Uh, and he had a fantastic voice, uh, my favourite rock, rock singer. But I don't believe that it was... I don't think John was the Beatles. I don't think Paul was the Beatles. The Beatles was the Beatles. It was, a, it was the combination. And George, at one point afterwards, said, yeah, well, Ringo and me, we were the... We were the <laughs> The economy class Beatles, and, <laughs> you know, um, which is a very fair point. You know, the pecking order definitely was John, Paul, George and Ringo, and then it swapped to Paul, John, George and Ringo. And I think John couldn't handle it and sort of took refuge in Yoko and that was it. But but um, it was definitely the, the four of them overlapping was what was so brilliant. I don't know. Do you like Beatles solo albums? Have you got any favorites? Yeah, I love all of their solo work. I mean, immediately what comes to mind is um, All Things Must Pass, mm. Band on the Run. Yeah. I love John's solo work during Double Fantasy. Yeah. How about you? Do you have any favorites? Um, much the same. I mean, I think a lot of their best stuff was done right as the band was great. So they would disintegrating and in some cases was actually written while they were still together um you know a lot of the stuff on all things must pass was demoed during the let it be sessions i love the plastic ono band record um i feel like after that john was a bit wrung out i don't know whether he had much more to say uh, i love band on the run and I like the Ringo record with all the guest stars, you know, and the band and Mark Bolan. And that's a fun record. Yeah, definitely. 
And I also really love Brainwashed, too, by George Harrison, his last one. Oh, Brainwashed. I haven't heard that. Is that any good? Yeah, yeah, I love that. What a great collection of songs. That's the one that came out in 2002, about a year after he passed away. Oh, right. And was produced by Jeff Lynne and his son, Danny. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's one of my favorite George albums. Oh, I've just always been a bit scared to partly because it was just before he went i don't know it's like hearing people's last things i don't really like listening to all the john lennon demos and things you know um sort of prefer to hear it from a bit further back when he wasn't quite so close to the end but yeah i'll I'll have a listen to it then yeah so do you have a favorite beatles album oh revolver oh nice one yeah i think i think revolver is my favorite of them as a group playing together like they were, you know, they were still touring when they made the record. They were still acting as a as a live quartet, even if nobody could hear them when they played and they were really, you know, they were fed up with the shows. Um, there wasn't a lot of love in those live Beatles gigs, I think, the last few years. It was just turning up. They might as well have been miming. Um, nobody could hear what they were doing. Everybody screamed, and they'd had three years of it, and they were a bit over it, I think. Um, but they made this. I mean, all their records were great in different ways, but I love the way nobody dominates, and they're still singing together a lot. So even if they're not writing together, there's that sound. You know, their voices together, which is my favorite element of the Beatles is actually hearing two or three of them sing together. Like she said, she said, it's just John and George. I don't think Paul's even on that track, but it's just got that vocal sound or um, something like Dr. Robert is, you know, John and Paul singing a lot together. It's just that. And there's three George songs on it and they're all really different great and you know they'll go into these three-part harmonies when they need to oh like you know like because at the right at the very end where you've just got that fantastic three-part harmony that is then triple tracked or something you know it's exquisite i love their voices together and what do you think of the recent remix of revolver i haven't actually heard it i've heard one or two bits i don't know what do you think of it i thought it was great I think a lot of songs sound a lot better. I mean, this, one of the standout tracks to me was uh, the Yellow Submarine demo where John yeah. is just kind of singing by himself with his guitar. Have you heard that one? Oh, yes, I have. In the town where I was born, no one cared, no one cared or something. Um, that track to me sounded like it could have been on the Plastic Ono Band. Yeah, well, it was... Probably, you know, one of his sad personal songs, which he, which he got, started writing, I don't know, maybe it was as soon as he started getting stoned or something, but, you know, like Help, if you hear the demo of Help, it's a really mournful song. He just sounds lost. Um, when I was younger so much, Younger than today I never needed anybody's help in any 
away And now these days are gone I don't think it's in that key, and if it is, it's not. It's not quite that, but it's really mournful, you know. And um, and then they, you know, they sped it up, and it sounds like a. It's about three times the speed that the band and George Martin get hold of it, and it's like a country song, you know, really snappy, but actually you get a feeling more of what it was actually about, you know. But you know, John could obviously be a real misery, and you know, you needed. If it wasn't for Paul, he could have been really dreary sometimes. I don't know. Paul snapped it all up, you know, pepped it up. And what do you think makes the Beatles songs always relevant? I think it's just the magic. I think there was some form of magic that was created by having the four of them in place. I mean, I guess they would have made it even if they'd kept Pete Best rather than Ringo, but Ringo was a sort of magical touch because Ringo was a personality that then became a cartoon character and and came through on in the movies, The Hard Day's Night and Help. And, you know, Ringo was a character and a personality in a way that I don't know whether Pete Best was. So you just, they were a magic entity, you know, and I don't, I don't know how you define magic, but you could definitely say whatever it was, they had it. And, and I think it's still there in the records, you know, people, you put on the records from, kind of up to up to the white album where they were still acting as a group and it's got some sort of electrical charge to it and then the later ones less so it tends to be all in a backing group and then sometimes john or george with the backing group but Paul seemed to be the guy that wrote the hits, so that the, you know, hey Jude, get back, the sort of let it be, the, the, the popular ones from their later days are Paul. But, but, um, but they're still great songs, you know, something is a terrific song. Um, John did a lot of his best work as they were breaking up. You know, she's so heavy. Happiness is a warm gun. Don't let me down. Um, you know, it kind of went off into cold turkey and instant karma. It's, it's that sort of phase of John Lennon was, I think, his most exciting. Um, but, yeah, I just just magic, really, Jack. So, Robin, what are you up to now? Are you involved in any projects, working on any magic recently? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. I have got my most recent album, Shuffle Mania, came out last fall and is still available on um, Emma's and my label, Tiny Ghost Records. And I believe it's, yeah, it's in the, reached the stores and reached Amazon. You can get it from our mail order service. And I'm about to do a, a American major city tour in March and April. I'll be at the Bowery Ballroom in New York on 
April the 1st. Um, and I'm just about to release my first ever record of instrumentals also on Tiny Ghost, which is called Life After Infinity and consists of 11 pieces of music with no vocals, which I'm proud of because it's my first chance to simply be a musician and um, have all the words taken out. So I guess it's like, you know, George Harrison doing Wonderwall or something. It's um, It just steps away from what I usually do and gives me a chance to play a lot of guitar and guitar that sounds like a sitar, but it's not a sitar. And a tiny bit of banjo. So, yeah, that's that's what I've got. So I've got, yeah, loads of projects spiraling away, spinning out. Awesome. And where can people find your work and more information related to that? Well, you can find the information at my website, robinhitchcock.com. You can also go to Tiny Ghost Records' website, which will have all our releases, um, uh, the records that Emma's put out so far, and um, mine. Um, we're also re-releasing the Soft Boys' second album, Underwater Moonlight, from 1980. That's coming out again on Tiny Ghost. So we're doing back catalogue stuff and we've got new stuff. Emma's got a couple of records that will be coming out in the next year or so that are made already. Yeah. So it's all happening. It's all happening down at the ghost. Awesome. And all of those links will be in the podcast description. So if you're listening and you're interested, you can click them right there. Robin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great conversation and great talking to you. Well, it's nice to see you and identify you. Keep flying the Beatles and, you know, I'll see you in New York. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. To find out more about Robin Hitchcock and his music, check out all the links I included in the podcast description. If you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social media. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Thank you.